Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish kin. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. We must get grain so that we may eat and stay alive. There were also those who said, we are having to pledge our fields, our vineyards, and our houses in order to get grain during the famine. And there were those who said, we are having to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay the kingdom, the king's tax. Now our flesh is the same as that of our kindred. Our children are the same as their children, and yet we are focusing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been ravished. We are powerless, and our fields and vineyards now belong to others. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. After thinking it over, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are all taking interest from your own people. And I called a great assembly to deal with them. The word of God. Please be seated. Pastor, thank you. good to be with you this morning and to contribute to the series that you've been doing in Nehemiah. You've been hearing about how pe the people have been having conflict from outside. You heard about that last week when Pastor Icky preached from Nehemiah chapter 4. He gave me the distinct pleasure of preaching on very impolite topics in chapter 5. Strategic, but wise. I get to talk about religion and economics, theology, <laughs> things you don't talk about at the dinner table. I want you to notice that at the beginning of this text, it begins with raising the voices of peasant Jews who are shouting out in protest and crying out in languish. They are having to do things they never imagined. They're in trouble. They're starving. They've lost their land. They've had to choose between selling their land off and feeding their families. They are many. They've seen their children have to go off into slavery because they are weighed down in debt. This is a people who are crying out for life. There are two primary protests in Nehemiah chapter 5. The first is that the people are protesting the king's tax. This king's tax was a tax that the Persian tax, the Persian tax extracted by local Jewish officials in the service of Persia. So the outcry here is that there are Jews who are willing to collude with the policies of extraction at the expense of other vulnerable Jews. 
The problem is internal, but it's internal with those who from among them would behave in the ways of the empire, forgetting who their kinfolk are. The second outcry is that the nobles have been seduced into a profit-centered economy and they have adopted the economic ethos of empire, meanwhile forgetting the vision and the instructions in the Deuteronomic and Holiness Codes that stress communal responsibility for the well-being of individuals. Even Nehemiah finds himself participating in this economy. The people are out of Egypt. They are out of Babylon, but they are enslaved by an economic system of extraction. They have brought with them the ways of Pharaoh and forgotten who they are and who they've been called to be. Nehemiah reprimands the people and he acknowledges that, that he too, he, he lives in this messiness of life and, and he's also been asking for interest. Look at verse 9 and you can see that. But he unequivocally states, the thing that you are doing, it is not good. In Deuteronomy 23, verse 19, the people had been instructed, and, and they know this, they'd been instructed not to take interest from kinfolk. They've forgotten. They've lost sight of the faith. And they've stopped thinking about how to provide a more abundant life for all. Now I think it's important to note two things before we continue to look a little closer at the Deuteronomic and Holiness Codes that have been forgotten. I think I need to point out, right, that scripture has no sense of economic philosophies that we are familiar with, right? Systems such as capitalism and socialism, that's not part of the biblical world, right? That's not something that is there. But scripture is overwhelmingly clear in communicating the economic ethos and emphasizing that life is interdependent, that we depend on each other, that in fact, we are our neighbor's keeper. The second thing I think we should note is that though the outcry here and much of the focus is that Jews have been extracting from other Jews, that a Christian understanding of who our brothers and sisters are, who our kinfolk are, that extends far beyond tribe or nation. The faith that we are called into, it engages in community in radical ways. The radical nature of our faith is that we in fact believe that yes, we are responsible for each other's well-being. And that is so hard to do in these human systems that we live in. Poverty, 
is a human problem that we've created by assuming that we are entitled to be owners of the land and all that is in the land. Nehemiah has to ask the people to stop and to give back the land and to give life to their kinfolk. And there are some ways to respond to the problems of poverty that are already set forth for us in the Deuteronomic and Holiness Code. Let me go through those with us today to remind us also and to call us back into the faith of being our neighbor's keepers. According to the Deuteronomic Code, Yahweh gave the Israelites everything they needed. And because of that, in Deuteronomy 15, verses 4 to 5, it says this, There will be no poor among you, because Yahweh your God will bless you in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess. If only you listen to the voice of Yahweh your God to carefully preserve this entire commandment that I charge to you today. I want you to take note that land is an inheritance, not a possession to be owned. Because you see, everything belongs to Yahweh, the Creator God. And it is given to the people for the benefit of all people. The radical idea in this text is that we live in abundance. And there is enough for all of us. We do not live in scarcity. We live in covenant with God and with each other. And there will be no poor among us. But it's almost as if the authors in the text anticipate that this radical idea is really gonna be a struggle for humans. When in Deuteronomy 15 verse 11 they write, kind of the opposite, right? The poor will never cease to be in your land. Every economic system even ones designed by God will be abused. I think the text is being pragmatic here. It's telling us that there will be no poor among us, and yet the poor will never cease to be in our land. There's an understanding of our humanity and our need to continually work to shape our desires for that which is good for our neighbors and not just what is good for ourselves. Deuteronomy 15.11 is often used to argue that really there's nothing that can be done about poverty. I mean, the poor will always be among us. Old Testament scholar Norman Gottwald argues that nothing can be further from the truth. This verse declares that there is always work to be done. It is a charge to God's people rather than a prediction because notice the conclusion in verse 11, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor 
and the needy in your land. The Deuteronomic Code freed people from the crushing debt through emancipatory practices of faith. That's what the sabbatical year was all about. Debts were forgiven, and this ensured that nobody was going to live under the weight of perpetual indebtedness, falling deeper and deeper into poverty, because the system is designed in such a way that you cannot crawl out. But there is the sabbatical year. The people need to be reminded. We need to be reminded. The Holiness Code had another answer for poverty, and that was to ensure that families had access to farmland, which of course, right, provided food and shelter and livelihood. And we know this because around the world and across time, right, agrarian cultures have found that the best way to ensure a family's continual access to land is to make its sale unlawful. In Leviticus 25, verses 23 through 24, God proclaims this. But the land must not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners. All of you are strangers and sojourners with me. Throughout the land that you hold, you must provide the redemption of the land. The situation that this verse is addressing is actually quite serious, right? If a family suffered crop failure for several seasons in a row and they started to see their food reserves become depleted, they could starve to death. That's part of the outcry in Nehemiah 5 at the beginning. They're starving to death and they're trying to find a way to mitigate that problem. Well, in the holiness code, right, if this were to happen and, and, and the family were to be starving, to stay alive, families in subsistence economies sometimes had to exchange sections of land holding for much needed provisions. But being in this kind of situation made these families really vulnerable to individuals or to other groups with greater resources who might want to permanently acquire the desperate family's land when they're going through a hard time. So the Holiness Code outlined an entire plan to address the kind of profiteering through a three-tiered safety net. The first safety net is that if a struggling farmer had to sell his land to a wealthier farmer, then it was the sacred duty of the struggling farmer's closest relative to purchase it back. The second safety net is that if the struggling farmer's extended family couldn't do that, right, they couldn't buy it back, and they were unable to reclaim the land, and the poor farmer were in the midst of all of that to fall on, on good fortune, he could buy his land back for the remaining value of the contract. So for example, if the impoverished farmer sold the land for 10 years in exchange for 10 units of grain, and he could afford to buy it back after like, let's say, five years, the original landholder would only owe five units of grain since the creditor could use the land for half the length of the contract. Notice that this is a credit system, not a debt system. 
If the first and second safety nets failed, well then Leviticus 25:28 offered one final defense, the year of Jubilee. After 50 years, the struggling farmer would get his land back because Yahweh is the only true owner of Israelites' land. The land was never theirs to begin with. It's an inheritance, a gift. The community in Nehemiah 5, they've forgotten. They've lost their way and they've developed what Walter Brueggemann calls amnesia. Money and possessions, as Brueggemann writes, they belong to God and they are held in trust by human persons and community. We manage money and possessions according to the will of the owner for the sake of the community. We are accountable to God. And the danger comes when we view money and possessions as mine, that we mismanage the earth and our possessions at the expense of the common good. In scripture, when it talks about remembering and do this in remembrance of me, I often like to tell my students, it's not to recall an event in your mind, to remember something. When God remembers, God acts. When God remembers his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God frees his people. Nehemiah's task is to help the people remember and to help himself included to remember that economics is a spiritual matter. And by spiritual, I am not referring to a matter of prayer or contemplation of some otherworldly reality that is to come. This is not an intellectual exercise or some disembodied spirituality that feels compassion toward without changing behaviors that sustain and reinforce unjust systems. I'm talking about a material faith. Nehemiah is in the same tradition as Moses, the prophets, and the brown-skinned Palestinian Jew from Nazareth who came to break bread and bring life to all abundantly without discrimination, knowing that it is hard and that it sometimes goes against our own desires and our own fears that there is not enough. But we must not be deceived into believing that there is not enough to open our hands and to live in the struggle because there will be no poor among us and the poor will never cease to be among us. So we must come back to our faith. The economic ethos in scripture remains unchanged and challenging us to live in the struggle, in the struggle 
and to talk a whole lot more about these unpolite topics. To talk more about issues of class. And to talk more about these economic systems that we are entangled in, in many ways. Can you hear the great outcries in our own time? A month ago, I picked up the New York Times and read the headline, and I heard one of the great outcries. The headline read, when there's arsenic in the water, but, in quotes, we have nowhere to go. The headline was quoting one of the residents who lives at the Oasis Mobile Home Park. In Coachella Valley, the eastern Coachella Valley here in California, who explained, if you read the entire article, that they, they work in the fields and they live there because it's the only affordable housing that they can have. And when many residents moved into this community, they didn't know about the problem with the water, that it has 10 times the amount of arsenic. And many of them say, we have nowhere else to go and, and, and we warn our children to be careful when brushing their teeth. And when we shower, we close our mouths because many in the community have had problems with health. They've had hair loss and cancer and kidney problems. But even when a family manages to find some other place to house themselves, another family quickly moves in because it's so hard to find housing. And if you read the article a little closely, you'll learn that that particular mobile home, like many in the area, actually have their historical roots back in, during the Bracero program when Mexican workers, right, were brought into the state to work into the fields. These are long problems that have been with us through scripture and even in our own time. But can you hear the cries? And can God, through the prophet, and through our being together in worship today, call us back to be in right relationship with him and with each other. In 2016, I lived in a small pueblo in, in Mexico while I studied the spirituality of working class Maya Mexicanas. Many women in that pueblo work on the assembly line of a multinational corporation that moved into their area because they knew that there were many hands that could work in the textile company in that small pueblo. There's a priest, there's one cathedral in this pueblo and there's a priest whose itinerant he comes in and out. And as I lived with uh, the women in the town and I spoke with them, many of them talked to me about this disengaged church who had no notion of how difficult their everyday lives were and the kind of work and struggle that they had inside of the factory doing their work, trying to provide food and shelter for their families. The wages that they make are tied to how much they can produce and how fast they can produce it and how many pieces they make, that's what determines how much she goes home with. None of the women go home with enough. In fact, the daily income of a woman working at a maquila is just simply not enough for survival. Many of them told me, la vida es cara. 
Life is expensive. I'm gonna speak in Spanish because I need you to hear them. The most common cry from the women is their children's need for leche, milk. I heard it over and over again. Depending on how many children a woman's raising, the cost of her home, including utilities, and the needs of her aging parents and in-laws, it is quite understandable that the price of milk would stress her. Lydia explains the kinds of choices that a mamá has to make. This is what she told me. Pero así que yo diga, le voy a comprar su ropa a mis hijos, semanal o mensual. No, no hay. Con lo poco que agarro que yo esté, que yo gano con eso, tengo que comprar leche. But for me to say, for instance, I'm going to buy clothes for my children, weekly or monthly, no. There isn't enough. With the little that I get, that I'm the one that, that I earn, with that, I have to buy milk. Maria tells me, she explains to me that this week, there is no money for milk. And she tells her children that they cannot ask for leche. She says, pasamos muy difícil porque los niños están llorando. Leche. Pero no piden si no tienen dinero. Están llorando leche. Pues cómo vas a comprar leche. We go through lots of difficulty because the children are crying out, milk, don't ask. There is no money. They are crying, milk. Well, how are you going to buy milk? Yet the women tell me that they continue to work and do all that they can because this is their lot in life. They are daughters of peasants, farmers. They have no education or access to one. Veronica tells me, she describes her life and she says, es un infierno. I agree. Yes, this is hell. Human made hell. We're approaching Labor Day and I'm not sure why I never recall my church, the communities where I grew up, really paused to commemorate the day, or even to contextualize my face in the context of labor. But I'm gonna do that today. I do believe that there's hope. And I think that hope is emerging from the lives of these women who I met, some ideas of how we might practice some emancipatory practices of faith. I think there are spiritual practices that can help us in our struggle to look out for the well-being of our neighbors and to practice a radically different faith because we have a different economic ethos than the one in Babylon and the one in Egypt. We need to build networks of solidarity and we need to practice an insurrection of non-violent inoperativity. Stick with me. I'm gonna get a little philosophical, but I'm gonna come right back down to the ground and ground this in faith practices. 
For Aristotle, potentiality is not only the capacity to be, but it is also the capacity not to be. An Italian philosopher by the name Giorgio Agamben takes Aristotle's notion of potentiality and he develops a political philosophy of inoperativity to discuss freedom and how subjects can enhance their freedom by rendering the apparatus, in this case, neoliberal capitalism, as inoperative. A concrete example of this emerged from the women. Women explained to me that building relationships with other women in the factory that they work with is key. And that what you need to do is to really have a good relationship with the woman who inspects the textiles pieces and grants you credit so that you get paid. The goodness of this relationship is based on both women protecting each other's interests and earning pay for work that they are not completing. When an article of clothing arrives at a department store because these women have been working with each other, trying to get enough, um, make their paychecks large enough so that they can feed their families and networking so that they are granting each other credit for things that they have not done. When it gets to a department store here in Southern California with imperfect stitching, I know where that clothes goes because I was raised by a single-parent Cuban refugee mother. They stick it in the back of the store in a bin where you can dig through it and find it at a discounted price. And here's the point. This practice, it's not gonna dismantle capitalism. And it didn't, right? But consider the emancipatory practice of faith that renders the apparatus inoperable even if only for a moment. And it provides wages and life for women on both sides of the border. I believe that sharing stories that make visible are connections between each other even transnational connections between the working class and any even small action to thwart the aims of profit-centered economies. I think that in sharing these stories, we have the potential to foment an insurrection of nonviolent inoperativity among workers, even if only for a moment, and the kingdom can break into the world and we can catch a glimpse. And that brings me much hope for a more just future. We are our neighbor's keeper. Our well-being is intimately tied with their well-being. So today, as we conclude this service, and together we each pray the Lord's Prayer in our own tongue. When you pray, give us this day our daily bread. I invite you to hear the great outcries.
and to come back to a faith that calls you to practice an economy radically different than the one in Egypt and the one in Babylon. You are free. So break free from those chains that continue to hold you back that you've carried out with you. So help us God.